Wow, what a conversation with Merve. This is absolutely spectacular how she views what needs to happen when it comes to data collection. What kind of foundational pillars do we need to live by when it comes to AI ethics? I really had a stimulating conversation with her. I hope you enjoy it. Let's hear, first of all, who she is and what she is doing in this space. My name is Mary Hickok. I'm the founder of AIethicist.org. Uh, I'm an independent AI ethics consultant and trainer. And my focus is really around creating awareness and advocating for AI ethics and governance. And I do a lot of training and um, consultancy to organizations as well as individuals on what the what AI ethics is, what the implications are, and how to build capacity uh, in, inside the organizations towards this. Now, for those of you that don't know, this is a series around AI ethics and governance. What we do is try to create conversations and discussions with the best and brightest minds in their fields like we have on today, Merve. It's absolutely critical for us to try to stimulate this discussion so that we can find some best practices and we can bring some of this buried practice that is happening all around us, but we don't even realize it. We are bringing that to the forefront. We are making sure that it gets talked about and that we can have some kind of accountability around it. So I really implore you to go and check out our Slack community. If you're not already in it, you can find the links below. We're continuing the conversation in Slack. It's not that this finishes here. I really want to make that a very clear clear proposal because if you are at all like me and you enjoy these kind of topics, go jump in Slack, introduce yourself, let us know what you're working on and what you think is important in the AI ethics and governance field and make some new friends. So the last thing I will say before we jump into the full episode is that we have an incredible sponsor. Our sponsor ethics grade is an ESG benchmarking firm and they specialize in technological governance. If if you want to see more about them, you can check the link below. And without further ado, let's get into this conversation that I just had with Merve. Are you a robot? Today, I am very excited to talk to you about AI ethics and dive into these subjects. I know we have a lot of things to talk about, so I just want to jump into it directly. And one thing that we mentioned we really need to touch on as we have this conversation is the amount of data that is being tracked on us right now. And I think that a lot of us have the idea that we're being tracked and data is being collected when we are using our phones or when we go to the bank or when we do things outside. But I know that you mentioned there's probably some other things that we don't necessarily think about as being uh, being tracked when we go about our daily lives. Right. So can you 
give us a breakdown on how many different ways we're being tracked? Uh, I think the question is really where we are not being tracked at this point, uh, unfortunately, because it's so ubiquitous. Um, in terms of like when you wake up in the morning and let's let's talk about let's walk through your day day uh, when you wake up in the morning uh, you're in in your house you have all these appliances and uh, smart devices or smart appliances smart speakers in your house that are constantly 24 7 collecting data um, different kinds of data on, on your life so anything from your doorbell to your thermostat to your Roomba vacuum cleaners to appliances, uh, let alone all the smart uh, home, home assistants that, we're, um, that, that, are, that are in our houses as well. So it, there is this ubiquitous in the background, you don't necessarily see it, but uh, it's the data collection that's happening. Uh, and then you might be working from home. Uh, you have if, you're, if you own a, co a company, say for a company equipment, whether that's your phone, tablet, or laptop, uh, there's a lot of surveillance happening uh, through that. It might be through, through your employer or it might be through um, uh, the different softwares that are on your on your computer. Someone might be sitting outside of your house uh, connecting to your Wi-Fi and connect, you know, uh, collecting data about you if you don't have the necessary security precautions or they might connect to the appliances in your house and still collect that information about you. Mm. Um, but anything, I think what we don't uh, understand uh, or we don't appreciate is anything that happens on your devices, whether that's your phone that we carry with us all the time, your tablets, your laptops, your uh, variable devices like your Fitbit or Apple Watch, whatever, uh, there's this constant uh, data collection around that. Um, you might be going into your car and a lot of, you know, we have in, in, in the cars that are coming out, a lot of the GPS uh, and diagnostics are collecting data. You might be going to a store uh, that is collecting data about you or walking in the street with the surveillance cameras. Uh, even churches and schools, banks, your gym, uh, pretty much anything and everything, any transportation uh, uh, method that you're using. Uh, the spaces that we have for ourselves, uh, are for ourselves, for our privacy, our data is not collected, are really shrinking um, mm -hmm. as, as we go about it. And I think one of the biggest issues with that is we don't necessarily understand uh, what the consequences of that data collection and processing is. Yeah, and that's something that I, I would love to dive into a bit more is what are the consequences? What is What does all this mean? What is the, the means to the end of collecting all of this data? Yeah, so just maybe uh, giving an example of uh, after going all this like list of things or places where data is collected, um, I, I would like to touch on like data brokers and um, you know not it's not only the comp the softwares or the websites that are collecting data about you, but uh, this is also being sold. So it's it it has it's, it's being repurposed uh, and being sold for different purposes as well. So um, say in in at least in the U.S., uh, we have credit 
bureaus, Experian, TransUnion, Equifax, and now you have the data brokers like Oracle or Axiom. So, uh, just to give a number, I'll, I'll, I'll to put it out there, say Axiom um, suggests that they have 3,000 attributes and scores for more than 700 million people in US and Europe. Um, so Oracle suggests that they have more than 30,000 attributes uh, for more than 2 billion, so that's with a B, uh, people around the world. So if you think Demetrios, you know, what are 30,000 attributes about Demetrios or Merve? I can start, you know, listing stuff, but I'll probably be stuck after maybe like 200. Yeah. So it makes yeah, you yeah. wonder and kind of makes you understand like how much data is being collected. And coming back to the impact of that and the consequences of that, it really is about how this data is repurposed and used so um, it's impacting or decisions are being made about you or manipulated or uh, it's used to uh, decide on the consumer services that you get, your, the, the pricing that you get for those services. It impacts the news that you see in your news feed, whether you're going into actual um, news websites or whether you're getting your news from Twitter or uh, Facebook. Uh, it impacts your health diagnostics, it impacts your credit rating, you know, how you are recruited, can you be recruited, it impacts the insurance premiums that you're paying or any eligibility. So it, it is really um, going into all industries and all applications that you might um, that you might be uh, connected on a, on a daily basis and major consequences with that. And so is this just a price we have to pay for the modern world that we're living in? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. I, I, I think that's more of the framing from the uh, entities that are collecting and benefiting from this uh, data. Uh, I don't think it, it is... Um, inevitable companies, uh, especially because they are the biggest uh, beneficiaries of this data, uh, wants, wants to frame this conversation around this is, this is inevitable, uh, you know, privacy is an old norm, you know, uh, if, that was coming from like Mark Zuckerberg for uh, a while back. The CEO of uh, Sun Systems were saying that, uh, you know, get over it, privacy is overrated, get over it. Um, you have Eric Schimmer saying Google is coming to that, you know, uh, uh, creepy that that creepy line. Uh, but we do want to uh, know what you think before you even think about it, and suggest what you should be interested before you even think that you need it. Uh, uh, so you need to look at who's benefiting from this framing of inevitability. Um, you know, just just going back to. Uh, some numbers around that because I do like to you know put some uh, numbers against this. We had Larry Page and Sergey Brin, co-founders of Google, right? So back in 1998, they had this papers when they were prototyping Google and talking about Google, saying, "Hey, advertising-funded search engines will be inherently biased towards advertisers mm. and away from the needs of the consumers." So Google is coming in, keeping consumers uh, and and like in, at the front of front and center. Uh, then you had the 1998 crash, the, 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 the 
need for more uh, fundraising, investment raising, etc. So fast forward um, to 2019, Google has 73% of the total US search advertising revenue. Um, globally, Google has 87% of search advertising. So guns are the day where, uh, you know, if, if you benefit financially from, uh, from search engines, then it is going to be biased against the consumers and you're going to benefit yourself and the advertiser. So that like, totally shifted, the model shifted, the mindset has shifted. Um, and not only that, you know, looking at, again, last year's numbers, ad revenue makes up 70% of Google's total revenue. So like the whole company, everything yeah. they do, do do with Google Cloud, advertising, et cetera. So when majority of your um, revenue globally is coming from uh, ad revenue, you're not a search engine platform anymore. Uh, you're, you're a big advertising company. Uh, or you're a mar marketing company that is benefiting from this. Um, so I, Again, it's a long way of saying uh, let's look at who's framing that conversation and whether that is um, inevitable or not. Mm. And so why do you think there isn't any kind of standard around data collection when we have all of these companies that are doing it basically however they want and we don't have any regulations or best practices or anything that we agree on is okay and not okay? Uh, I think it's, uh, for me, it's more of a power question. So for there to be any, any change, for there to be any governance, there really needs to be a critical amount of people demanding that change. And for there to be that demand, for that critical amount of demand, there needs to be an understanding of how collection on and use of data works, right? So going back to our first uh, things, if you don't understand the consequences of that data collection, how it is used uh, by these entities, how is it might be used against you, and how the dots are connected, because um, data collected by one entity doesn't sit with that entity. You can sell that, you can repur repurpose that, uh, and use it for something else. Uh, so without understanding that that consequence and implications uh it is really hard for you like without making that connection that your facebook post is going to cost you a job or lower loan rates or that fitbit your fitbit data is going to be used by the insurance broker or insurance company to adjust your premiums or eligibility uh you might not demand that change around governance and, and, and data collection. Mm -hmm. And also looking at, you know, how much um, uh, these companies uh, who are the biggest beneficiaries of, of, of data collection and repurposing, uh, we also need to look at how much money they're spending in terms of lobbying against governance and regulation uh, and how powerful they are to, um, to avoid that. Hmm. So I know that you've done a lot of work inside of the AI and recruitment or AI when it comes to hiring yeah. and interviewing. And so I want to jump into that a little bit. And can you just give us a breakdown, a lay of the land of how AI is used today in recruitment and interviewing and 
and job hiring. Yeah, absolutely, because that's something that's very close to my heart. Uh, by by trade, I'm a certified uh, HR profession professional, and I spend uh, more than. 10, I mean, at, at this point, it's uh, more than uh, 15 years on uh, HR technology, recruitment, benchmarking, as well as uh, diversity. So I used to work for Bank of America Merrill Lynch as the diversity recruitment manager and in charge of a couple of our recruitment technologies uh, across the world, so outside of U.S., anything outside of U.S., basically. Mm. Um and that gave, really gave me an insight of what, uh, you know, good practices, best practices in the industry. Uh, but when you're looking at how AI has evolved, how technology has evolved and how AI is being you know, used in, in, in recruitment right now is, um, so say you're a recruiter, if you're a hiring manager, you have an open position, you want to cast the net as uh, wide as possible to get as many candidates uh, that are relevant for the position. So moving away from your traditional methods of attracting candidates or notifying candidates, you want to uh, go out and literally go out to the world uh, with a click of a, of a button saying, hey, this is the company, this is the job, uh, app, this is the click and apply and go, go through this process. And you're really doing that to find the best candidate for the company, uh, potentially help your diversity, you know, being able to find the um, the best qualified candidate out there. So one type, uh, one the first application of AI in recruitment is how do we cast that uh, net wider? Uh, once you have candidates that are applied, then you need to narrow that pool, right? <laughs> now that you have a lot of people, how do you manage that people? Uh, and the, one of the business case for AI in recruitment is, okay, how can we help companies or how can the vendors help companies to do it quicker, faster, cheaper, mm-hmm. and better? Uh, need to caveat that, uh, and I'll caveat that in a minute. Um, so to narrow that pool what we call, what we usually call like recruitment funnel, because uh, as you're going down each stage of interviews and assessments or et cetera, it's less and less people, you're filtering it down, right? Mm. Um, so AI is now used for um, assessments, uh, to assess candidates to in, in terms of you know, games, uh, questions, tests, uh, virtual reality, et cetera, or case, uh, case studies or case applications to see if the candidate is applicable, assess the, you know, assess uh, if the candidate is a good one that is, for, that is relevant for this job. Um, AI is also used for interviews, um, whether that is automated interviews. Um, so there are multiple ways of doing that. If I can go into a bit more detail. Yeah, please. Uh, there are uses of AI to just record interviews. So no analysis. It's really a, a, a bot kind of walking you through pre-recorded uh, questions uh, that the company has decided are relevant for that particular position. So instead of a recruiter spending, uh, trying to find a time in the schedule, arranging schedules, etc. cetera, um, the candidate goes and answers those questions and then 
a human uh, reviews it and makes that decision to pass, fail, move forward, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there are um, AI products where the assessment is actually done uh, by the AI, not the human. So you go in, it is either a facial analysis uh, or you know, sentiment analysis or voice analysis where uh, depending on what parameters that the system is built on, what your model is, um, the system makes a decision to filter the candidate through or out. Um, and there are some question marks around that. Yeah. Um, you can also use uh, AI to do um, to automate some of the administrative tasks. I think there, there's a lot of uh, great cases, business case for AI around that. So instead of you know your coordinators, assistants, you know secretaries or recruiter putting in time for that, you can automate the task of okay, arrange this. Uh, interview time like these are the documents help help the candidate to go you know uh, go through some of the basic questions uh administrative tasks documentation etc so I, I see a lot of um benefit on that then you move forward um through all these like different assessments um pieces and then uh you can use ai there are some uses of ai where um the software looking at different uh, background information on the candidate uh, helps you make a suggestion for the offer. Mm. You know how much you should offer as a as a as a compensation package. What's the likelihood of the candidate to uh, accept that offer? Uh, so, you know, if you don't have a structured, if you don't have a, a equitable and structured uh, wage or compensation structure in your company what that helps what really that helps is to do for the companies is to game the system a bit and see what the candidate is likely to accept arrange the compensation accordingly which then creates a lot of gaps and and differences and inconsistencies inside the company uh, which creates a whole different thing and then ai is also used for uh, social media backgrounds and uh, that's another red one of the red line items uh for me because uh, you know you're not sp- in in a lot of the states and in some countries you're not supposed to be uh looking at a candidate's social media profiles before you make an offer mm-hmm. or even after that you know that that's a that's in, in, in certain jurisdictions, that's protected information and that's personal space. Uh, but there are uh, states where this is uh, this is um, possible. Uh, so a, a company can use this AI vendors who kind of go and uh, parse in a candidate's information uh, from the from all of their social media accounts. So okay, what Mary has posted in different uh, platforms and give you a score, kind of a risk score. So what happens is all of your um, information about your social standing, your family, your political views, uh, your views about the world, et cetera, then or your friends, even like your network. So it's not even about you. Your network also comes into the... uh, thing and you're giving this score 
that says, okay, Mary is a good candidate or not, or and you know, or she's a threat or not a threat for 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 this company because of these posts, or uh, it might give um, an idea to the recruiters or hiring managers about information that I didn't, I wish not to disclose during the application or the interview. Yeah. So you might be pregnant, you, you know, you might not wish to disclose your you know, sexual identity or gender preferences or anything, or how many kids you have and what your, you know, uh, home responsibilities are. So those should not be decisions factoring into a hiring decision, but these products give you the um, give you access to that information. Well, I think all of that is fascinating. First of all, thank you for breaking it down. I think that is a incredible landscape of what AI is being used for right now when it comes to the hiring process. And I had no idea about half of that and uh, probably makes sense why I wasn't getting called back a lot of the times when I was <laughs> applying for uh, jobs. But I think that one thing we've talked about, there's two two ways I want to go with this. One, one is that we've talked about this on the show a few times, and it's really worth diving into how biased these machine learning models can be. Not just, okay, it's biased, it gives you a score uh, about someone, but biased in that if you have an anomaly, like someone who, uh, I forget who mentioned this, but it's, you know, imagine you have some kind of, uh, you, you go through a stroke, right? And you lose the movement and the ability to use one side of your face. Now, when you go in front of one of these AI um, facial recognition or emotional recognition algorithms and you're applying for a job, this algorithm is very much going to skew towards, oh, well, this person is not smiling or they're not looking at the camera. They're not making eye contact. So you get this anomaly, which boom, that person gets disqualified. But really, it is not because of anything that they are, it's not their personality. It's because they've been through maybe a severe accident or a stroke or something like that. And so you have these really, I'm not going to say they're edge use cases, but you have use cases where this is very, very dangerous, especially when we're talking about someone's livelihood. And these are important pieces of someone's life, whether or not they get a job. This is what I like to refer to as more high stakes. It's not just who do you know on Facebook? right? It's very high stakes because this can determine if I get a job or not, which can determine if I can provide for my family. So I think that is one thing that really is is a bit cringeworthy when you think about these AI and machine learning models and all of that being put out into the wild before it's really been tested on every extreme use case. And then the other thing that is scary is that humans are much more likely to trust what a machine says. So if the algorithm says, hey, you know, you have a 50% chance of risk with this person, even if that is not at all based in reality, the human will trust that more than 
if it didn't say anything. So automatically, and let's go with a higher percentage, right? If if it says, hey, Demetrius is a 70% risk at, of leaving the company within one year if he gets hired here, then they're probably not going to look at me as a long-term candidate, right? So just because the algorithm said that, but it has no basis in reality, I mean, it may end up being the one who stays there the longest. So those are two things that I wanted to point out and just see what your feelings are around that. And I'll I'll start Demetrius with with the the the, the last bit that you touched that might not have any connection to reality because that's what the first question really should be. Uh, you know, what's the validity of these uh, applications to as to predict success uh, mm. in a certain role? So, uh, or in a specific role. So I usually say, you know, be beware of the shiny thing or be aware of the snake oil when it comes to this stuff. Uh, so if if I can break that down a bit, you know, let's look at facial analysis or sentiment analysis or voice analysis. What if 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 I'm looking at facial analysis, what is the relation, predictive relation between my facial um, structure mm-hmm. uh, and the, the, you know, the distance between my eyes, how I, how I speak, how I move my face, uh, my, um, you know, eye connection, you know, looking at directly at the camera, etc. What does that have to do with uh, my success in, in a certain role? You might say an edge example that if you're in a sales position, if you want to build trust with a customer where you're like providing services face to face, then you might want someone who can keep a direct eye contact. That's maybe that's like one case, Uh, but um, we need to kind of remember the history of using this like facial traits, uh, physical traits. And trying to predict stuff through that, uh, you know, we we have history of eugenics, we have history of phrenology, uh, phrenology uh, around the world, and what what was used to justify slavery, what was used to justify some of the uh, World War II um, uh, experiments or consequences, what was used to justify some of the racism. Uh, in, in this country and around the world, so let's let's be careful what we are trying to use and uh, why we're using it. Um, but going back to again to, to that validity, uh, you know what? The stake voice analysis. You know what's the word count number of words that I used uh, for a given given question? You know what the complexity of my word my uh, my sentences, what the pitch of my voice has anything to do uh, if I'm applying for like a data analysis job or or an operations job or any, any, anything. If like we need to be really careful about that predictor validity to start with, and only if we feel really comfortable and there's a you know evidence based validity between a connection between the job and success and the, the method that you're using. Uh, and then talk about bias. Uh, 
But coming coming to the bias, like you're you're spot on with uh, with how these models are built and how there's bias within the data sets that we're using to build these models, the prediction pred predictions that come out of these models, and also how humans are um, understanding or interpreting the the results that are coming out of uh, these these systems. You know, we still have limitations around uh, voice recognition and natural language processing systems to uh, understand the conversation, understand the nuances, the context of a conversation. Uh, so you might make um, a suggestion or a decision about a candidate that is totally wrong and the candidate doesn't have any idea of what happened or how to rectify that. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing high volume hiring, uh, the recruiters are not going to go back and check every single candidate and the decision. Uh, they, to your point, they trust the system. They're, you know, it's 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 AI, it's the computer, it's 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 this technologies we're paying for, it's the shiny thing. I'm not going to go back and have time uh, to 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 verify this. Uh, but it also has impacts on people, like you said, with disabilities, with speech impairments, uh, people with accents, people whose language, native language might, or sorry, whose language that they're interviewing with might not be their uh, native language. So um, say uh, you, might, you might be an immigrant, you might be a non-US citizen in the context of US, applying and English might not be your first language. Uh, Again, what do you do about this? Are those all like edge cases because they haven't uh, fit the voice analysis or they haven't been able to go through the voice analysis? Uh, you know, what's the uh, what's the relationship to the job? Again, what's the predictive factor? How accurate are you? And what do you do about those 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 cases? Are they never going to get a job in your company? Uh, are we totally locking these people out if they have speech impairments or any disability or say if you have autism and you're not you don't like making an eye contact with the camera while you're answering the questions does that mean that we're never hiring that person i think for me one of the biggest consequences is as these technologies are becoming more um more ubiquitous around us and are adopted by more and more companies, uh, certain people are going to be permanently, and I want to underline permanently, will be locked out of certain companies or certain positions. So if you have a big major vendor that is used by like AI vendor, AI analysis, analytical, analytics vendor that is used by almost all of Fortune 500, and it keeps filtering you out because of your face, your voice, uh, your speech, or whatever. Um, and the, these companies don't have controls around this. Are you never getting uh, jobs in these companies? Mm -hmm. Are you never having a like, good paying job? Yeah, that's fascinating to think about. And it's a little bit scary. I mean, do you have a solution? Do you have something that you think is better? Because I know that there are reasons. I understand the arguments for 
trying to automate some of this, especially in what you said earlier, like high volume recruitment, where you need to be hiring a lot of people. And anyone who has been through trying to hire just one person, really, I'm sure they understand they can empathize with someone who has to hire 100 people on a monthly basis, right? So are there cases where you feel like this should be used? And how can we keep it from falling into these traps that you speak about? So there are certainly great business cases and reasons to use. Uh, I, I wouldn't just because uh, AI products, these products have certain uh, issues, I wouldn't totally wipe, say, wipe them out and say never use AI products in recruitment. That's not what I'm saying. Um, I think humans have more biases. If we go back to paper-based and human full-on human interaction without mm. proper training, proper controls, etc., then we're risking hiring more of people that looks like you. Looks like the hiring manager or the recruiter. So, same college knows the same people, same area, same you know whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so, one of, for me, one of the biggest uh, possibility with AI, if if you have the right product, if you have a, an unbiased product used with uh, in a controlled way uh, with all the others stuff in place uh you you can be you're kind of standardizing the process so you're not dependent on the human whether that's a recruiter or a hiring manager to make individual decisions depending on their moods for the day and or what they picked up in a, in a resume so the same rules same criteria apply to all candidates so you're kind of democratizing it and and standardizing that process you're certainly able to reach more candidates and again if if you if you have a good product uh, and I think we can define what a good product looks like in, in a minute but if you have a good product um, you're also hiring you're definitely hiring faster uh, better uh, with less cost, uh, and that will have impact on, on, on your bottom line and your company's performance and on your teams. Uh, but there's a big caveat around that, right? So there's definitely um, great reasons on why we should look into these products and try to improve them. Uh, but we have to, we have to, as employers, we have to have go through that due diligence and as developers on the vendor side, um, we definitely need to invest more in in making these products better. Because to your point, this is a high stake area. Yeah. And it has a lot of downstream implications for a person's life. So as far as who is in charge, I think... Uh when you're looking at like governments and how they're hiring and just the, the greater state, who is in charge? Like who should it be that reviews and audits the whole process when you do have some kind of machine learning algorithm involved 
And that machine learning algorithm is deciding on the country's labor force. I think there, there definitely needs to be some bit of regulations uh, around this, not only for government hiring, but also for private hiring in terms of uh, you know notification to the candidates, consent, alternative methods of hiring or assessment, uh, mm. you know ways to rectify uh, your information in the systems or way way to challenge some of the decisions. Uh, but going back to who should look into the systems, I would definitely say third party, you know, after, after those regulations and governance is in place, I would definitely say third party because uh, uh, I think the AI systems or automated decision-making systems are becoming uh, embedded into the government uh, users or public users as well. Um, so in a lot of the areas, government either doesn't have full control or full insight into the systems or they might not have the capacity uh, to audit the systems or continue to main that, maintain that capacity of staff or of, like people who are, who can audit and, you know, come to a decision or do, do, do diligence about the systems. So I think there is... Um, the case is definitely for third party uh, auditors and whether those are you know nonprofit organizations that are that are empowered to do this or whether those are uh, independent third party auditors that uh, have fiduciary responsibility and have res you know legal responsibility on on, on the decisions on on, on certifications just just like you have like in the in, in uh, in aud like tax audits or audits mm -hmm. like Sarbanes-Oxley audits, etc. Uh, you know, there's there there's a cost for the auditors as well, and like, there cannot be any like conflict of interest. I think whoever is doing that needs to be free of conflict of interest, uh, whether they're yeah, auditing and the most government. Of the time that works yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, that does right. <laughs> Not always, but uh, yeah. most of the time. But uh, you said something interesting there when it comes to the regulations that we put around this and what we are notified as. I think that's a really great way of looking at it. If we are going through the motions of trying to get a job and we are faced with some kind of machine learning algorithm or some one of these shiny new toys that you talk about, we should be first of all, notified that that is how we are being judged. It's off of an algorithm. And second of all, we can see what kind of data they are using so that we can either fight it if we feel like we have been mistreated or we know and we can ask for the data that did get collected to be deleted, much like now in Europe, I'm, I'm in Germany at the moment and we, we have the right to disappear, right? And I think that is really interesting because then, like you said, this data from one job won't get brokered over into another job and we get permanently locked out because it's the same machine learning algorithm that already knows me from the other job and it already said no to me. So it's going to say no again. And it's like, man, this, this algorithm really doesn't like me. So 
there are really interesting things that need to happen as far as regulation goes around that. And that needs to happen soon. I mean, do you foresee that happening within the next year or two years? Or is this something that is not really at the forefront? This is like my early Christmas uh, list. <laughs> my Christmas wishes. At <laughs> um, uh, I do foresee eventual regula- eventual regulation, and I think you know GDPR uh, was a good example. Uh, although there's still areas of GDPR that we're waiting to see how it's going to be implemented, but it definitely is a good start. Um, and there are other countries that are outside of Europe who are taking GDPR as uh, as an inspiration. And yeah. the, the the awareness around uh, around this is going to increase, uh, and it is going to be more uh, mainstream. Uh, and the demands will 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 change accordingly. So I'm optimistic. How long that will take is another question, but I think there is definitely going to be regulation around this. And I would like to expand that to not only the you know recruitment algorithms, but any any data collection, right? So the, the biggest uh, issues that we have right now are, uh, not the biggest issues that we have right now, but uh, the biggest um, data collectors uh, right now are the, the insurance companies, the data brokers, and uh, the big uh, the big tech, you know, there are four or five big tech companies, mm-hmm. you know, and they have such... Uh, an asymmetrical power uh, in terms of pushing back on this or in terms of how to protect that data that there needs to be a regulation because the individuals by themselves, even if, if, even if I know all the consequences right now and how the dots are connected, and I'm in this, like I'm spending all my waking hours on this, right? Uh, I cannot fight as Marve against a, a company, a data broker, about uh, access to my data, full access to all, all the data that they have on me, access to modify that, correct that, let alone, uh, you know, erasure, right to erasure. Uh, so as an individual, it's too complex and too powerful, too asymmetrical of a power relationship for me to do anything about about that. So there has to be, there definitely has to be regulations. Mm-hmm. And I'm more hopeful of this administration, at least in the US, to follow uh, uh, follow suit on that. Uh, and also looking at, you know, regulations, it needs to be global. So you see, you know, GDPR being putting into practice and then big tech companies kind of moving their servers outside of GDPR countries and putting in, say, Ireland or um, moving it back to US where the server uh, location, if the server location is, is, where the server location is relevant to that regulation to get away with that. If they're being pushed back uh, as a U.S. entity, they create other entities in, in the local jurisdiction. So they con- there's this constant uh, back and forth uh, game of uh, 
now now you see me now you don't catch me if yeah. you can kind of thing and and i think uh unless we have more global uh globally applicable regulations uh or conventions around us uh you might have this certain countries what that act like what tax have, have heavens are uh in terms of you know profits and revenues we might have countries with uh you know data heavens where uh, that allow these companies uh to avoid governance or avoid regulation that sounds like a tall order to get everyone in line and make sure that we don't have any data heavens or havens. And it really seems like that's going to be something that we'll need. I mean, especially if you're looking at like, like you look at these tax havens and they attract foreign investment or they attract foreign money to come in because they have these laws that are relaxed or these taxes that are relaxed and you could theoretically see that happening with data and then it attracts foreign investment and foreign companies so it is a little bit scary to think about that and how we all will need to agree on it so that there aren't these games of cat and mouse going on and I want to just change gears before we finish up because I read your Medium article about like data collection in a pandemic, right? And this was written in April. Yep. And so it was right when the pandemic was really gearing up and gaining speed. We were in the midst. It was, we were full on, right? And one thing that I noticed is that you talked about how easily it is for us to lose our privacy in the name of uh, safety. And I like, I'm very much for our privacy, right? But I couldn't help but thinking when I read this that now, wherever we are, however long it's been since the pandemic started, it feels like an eternity. I think it's only been six months or however long. I know, right? <laughs> I don't know how long it's been, but it's been too long. But what I do know is that when I look at China, they were able to eradicate the pandemic, right, from the country. And they used very, very harsh surveillance and what you basically in your article were advocating for us to not do. But China brought in the big brother, they made sure to contact trace, they made sure to not let people move that much, they took away all of these civil liberties. And then it worked out for the better for them. And us in, well, me in Europe, you in the US, we're still full on in the pandemic, the cases are getting worse by the day. And we have not implemented any of this from and especially i look at it like from our phones like being able to have the government contact trace us on our phones and these are things that are very much in germany where i am we have the ability to download an app and then it gives you a warning if someone that you've been in contact with in the past seven days has tested positive but that person a has to get tested and b 
has to have the app on their phone and they have to be in contact with me. So I could still potentially get it um, and never have a anything pop up on my phone. But I guess the whole thing that I'm trying to say, my whole point here is that knowing what we know now with how China was able to eradicate the the pandemic from their country with these very strict laws that they put into place or these policies that they put into place and knowing where we are as Europe and US and we have not put those into place, do you still feel like we need to be very careful when it comes to giving up our privacy for the greater good? I still stand very much with what I said in April. Uh, and I think I will disagree with you on saying China did things that I said not to do in the article. I think they did exactly what I uh, what I was trying to get to uh, in the article. Uh, and here's the reason what I, why I'm saying that. One of my biggest things in the article, and apologies for the grandfather clock uh, the no background. I, I cannot it's unplug nice that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it doesn't have a mute button. Um, but going back to what China did and what I was trying to say, um, if you are going to put a dichotomy like your, we need your privacy, so for your sick, for for public health, for for safety or for security. That needs to be a correct dichotomy with all the mechanisms in place. Um, so that's that was what I was getting into 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 the article and putting a framework around that. Um, and what I'm what what that means is you might give up all your um, health data, your location data uh, as an individual, uh, or you might be forced to give that, and you can be surveilled. But if we don't have enough testing, if we don't have precautions, if we uh, if you're not doing proper containment for areas that are that or people for people that have tested positive, if we don't have uh, trust in that system or mechanisms that would allow us to have trust in that system, so everyone is. Um, is abiding by the rules. It's it's, uh, and the system, the tracing apps actually technically work properly. Mm. Uh, then, then it's a correct dichotomy, uh, and it it should be used. And I think that you know that's what China did. You know that's they were able to contain areas with uh, severe lockdowns. So people were, yes, they were surveilled in terms of where they were going, what they were doing, etc. But first it started with containing the area and people respecting or being forced to respect uh, that that that's like some, well, some of the precautions that we, that they should take. And then there was testing. Um, if you don't know, if I'm positive and a contract tracing app picks notifies you as okay you're you possibly um, have been ex- exposed to this person and if you don't care about that go and test or quarantine yourself or take precautions or download the app you have uh, a small number of the population or 
uh, unrepresentative number of the population uh, that is tested and is being traced. Uh, you have made it voluntary, so even if people are notified, they're either not tested or don't notify or don't use that inform or share that information. Uh, you have people who are using this information uh, not only for health purposes, but for surveillance purposes, like it's shared with police or ICE, uh, or like border security or detentions, etc. You don't have, you know, some of the apps that we've seen were either uh, wrong, uh, like giving wrong, uh, you know, wrong results, because the Bluetooth was not accurate in terms of the proximity of the two people. Uh, so you might be upstairs in a, in, a, in the same apartment. You might be upstairs. I might be downstairs. Never had contact. There's absolutely no possibility to. Uh, infect you uh, or contaminate the area, but the Bluetooth, because of proximity, because of the walls, because it doesn't like, correctly uh, pick that up. Um, so that's like the technical side of the uh, technical side of the applications as well. Uh, so all those need to be in place. So I, I need to trust that if I'm if I'm giving up an information or if any information is giving that it's not going to come back and bite uh, somewhere else you know in, term, in terms of my interactions with insurance uh, my future health coverage uh, my you know policing border whatever or school or whatever that you name it that uh, the mechanism should be in place for me to to trust that and respect that in, in the precautions. There definitely needs to be enough testing, enough of a testing, and that should not be politicized because without knowing who's actually positive, the whole system of contact tracing collapses. So it doesn't, ha it doesn't matter if, if I give all my information or if we have like complete surveillance systems where I can track <laughs> people. If, if I don't know who's positive, who's not, there is no reason uh, to, uh, to do any contact tracing. Yeah, and, uh, and also I was saying, you know, it needs to be purpose, in the article, it needs to be purposeful and it needs to have sunset closes. So once you have used that information to do proper testing, proper notification, et cetera, and it is contained, everything is um, in 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 control, uh, and then you, you you delete that information or you get rid of that information or you sunset the special powers and privileges or permissions some entities have, or, you know, it's, so it's not repurposed or it's not uh, built into some, something else. This, those are the things that I was getting into the article of breaking down that is this dichotomy of your privacy or your health is, is a correct one. Now, if you're talking about sharing health information, so you can um, share that for research and diagnostic purposes on how to improve, you know, immunization, vaccination, some of the, you know, hospital protocols, etc. Yes, by all means, uh, for research purposes, that should under the, uh, you know, in in 
non-individualized data, that, that should definitely be shared. Uh, but if you're talking about contract tracing uh, for the purposes of contract tracing and not controlling the pandemic, uh, then your intention, your motivation for contract tracing and collecting that data is not correct. Hmm. Yeah, I think you make a wonderful point when you talk about the trust that needs to be there and just how little trust I think we have. And so in that way, it's very hard to believe in whatever is brought forth because the unless we see, oh, okay, like you, there's a sunset clause on this and this is going to stay in its lane. This is only going to be used for the uh, pandemic. It's not going to later be repurposed and sold to others. And those things need to be accounted for before I think the general public will get on board. I honestly think it's going to be very difficult for a democracy to have a response like that, where we give up that many of our of our liberties to get rid of the pandemic. I think that's something that China was able to do because they have a bit more power when it comes to what they can and can't do with the society. But us as a uh, quote unquote free society, we wouldn't let that stand. And so, I mean... It's, it's something that I ponder. I really think about it in depth because, yeah, maybe it would be for the better if we did have that uh, very strict contact tracing and lockdown, the confinement and the, uh, the circling off to make sure that it doesn't spread. But I just don't see that ever happening where yeah, we're at. Yeah, but in a free society... Um for that to happen for majority of the people uh, of the population to voluntarily to do that they really need to trust the system and trust that one the the decisions that are coming out of it or the determinations that are coming out of it are correct mm -hmm. it is for the benefit of them and as well as the society that uh they can trust their data with whichever the entity uh and then that the, the actions that are going to be taken afterwards are for, again, for the benefit of society. I think um, without that trust in the system, in the agencies, in government, and in, in technology, you cannot, to your point, you cannot get to that point. Uh, but why did we lose that trust or why are we questioning that trust is exactly what I was saying in the article that either the companies or the government has a whole history, long history of once yeah. they have information, information is power, data is power, right? They Once they have that power to collect information about you and use that information, uh, they don't easily let that go. We've seen that after 9-11, if you remember the article, uh, you know, we, we've seen that, you know, in, in repurpose of, of the data, etc. So there is a reason why people are questioning uh, this, this, this trust and transparency. And there is absolutely no transparency. So it's yeah. like just an example of the, uh, the, the app used in UK, NHSX, 
system, there's been a trickle uh, of information coming out of how all the contracts were put in place for the private companies that were brought in uh, to build that app. You know, what were the relationship between the some of the government officials and, and the, the vendors? Um, what kind of information that those vendors are, are collecting and who owns that data? Because uh, not only they're asking about health information, there's a lot of socioeconomic information as well. Um, and not everyone has, I mean, that's, that's also another thing, you know, not, also, not everyone has access to these technologies or a smartphone. So even if everyone has, who had a smartphone or using these apps, you still have a good percentage of the population that doesn't have access to internet or smartphones who would be outliers who would be uh, who would not get the benefit of this stuff so when you're coming up with solutions you also need to think of what is going to make the most impact in an equitable way hmm. not just the ones who are in a uh, economically in a better uh, place who can afford this uh, these systems well then comes back to what you said it's all about trust and it's very difficult for us as a society to trust that the government is going to be doing the right thing with the data, with the track record that they have currently. And even if they did, let's imagine that, yes, they were going to do the right thing. With so much misinformation out there, there's no way that all of us would believe that they're going to do the right thing. Let's imagine that they actually did have the intention of doing all of these things and being very transparent and sunsetting the data once it is uh, once the pandemic is over. I don't think that we would even see a consensus from the greater population because of the misinformation and and political games that are being played. So it's a tough situation to be in, and that's just where we are at right now, I guess. But I really appreciate you. <laughs> my my daughter wanted to say something there too. But I really appreciate you coming on here and talking to us about this and making sure that we understand the implications and we understand what the the power of this is. <laughs> Sorry, my my daughter's playing at my feet Love here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really fascinating to know how our data is being collected, also to look at how data is being used and machine learning and AI is being used when it comes to hiring and what we are capable of doing, what kind of regulations are needed or necessary when it comes to the machine learning and HR sphere that we spoke about, and then also the the trust that you spoke of when we look at how the government is using um, our data. So really appreciate this conversation. And I could keep talking to you for another hour at least, I'm sure, but you probably have many things to do. You're a busy woman. Well, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. Hopefully, we have another one down the line. Um, definitely. We definitely need, uh, I mean, that that's the whole reason why we need transparency and accountability around 
data collection and data use and the decisions made with these data without those, uh, this is just going to become more impactful in a, in a negative way in our lives. Mm. You know, it's, and I, I always say, I just want to finish up with that. You know, when we are faced with framing or dichotomies around this conversation, like always question whether that actually holds, uh, whether that's, that's, that's the right framing. Uh, and also see who's benefiting. That's uh, like they say, follow the money, right? So mm-hmm. who's, who's, who's benefiting from, from what is happening, what is not happening. So you have a lot of companies, a lot of like government agencies and private companies rushing to collect data on this, but no one is rushing to create a, a database on police brutality. No one is uh, rushing to create or investing in creating a, a database of contributions from corporations to politicians. Mm. Uh, you know, it's like, why, why don't we have those stuff? Why are we not looking at that and collecting information around that and making those more pr- pr- you know, transparent so we can correct the stuff rather than uh, collecting my very personal information, private information, and selling that and making revenue out of that. Wow. Such valid points. Really opened my eyes. I cannot thank you enough for coming and sitting down and talking with us. Have a great day, and we will see you here again, hopefully soon, because now I just have more questions that I want to ask you. <laughs> you left me with a cliffhanger. Uh, Look, looking forward to it. And again, thanks, thanks for having me today. Cheers. Cheers.